Thank you for standing by, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to today's webinar. We have with us Mr. Nicholas Bornosis, President of Capital Link, organiser of the event. I must advise you the conference is being recorded today. We now pass the floor to Mr. Bornosis. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Jenny, and good morning to everyone. This is Nicholas Bornosis, President of Capital Link and I would like to welcome you to Capital Link's webinar series and to today's webinar. Today's webinar will feature tortoise on the topic of why now might be a good time to invest in midstream energy. And we're delighted to have with us today our two featured speakers. Uh, we have Michael Jobara, Managing Director and Head of the Exchange Traded Funds and Closed-End Fund Research team from Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. And also we have Jeremy Goff, he is a, a director at Tortoise. So uh, please note that uh, there are no slides uh, to be used in today's uh, webinar. This is uh, a discussion between uh, Michael and Jeremy. And again, the topic is why now, uh, why now might be a good time to invest in midstream energy. This event is accessible through a live audio webcast, and then it will also be available as an audio archive through www capitallinkwebinars.com. As I mentioned, there will be a discussion, and uh, after the discussion, there will be uh, a Q&A session. Uh, webinar participants can submit questions through the special button on the event page. As you can see, there's a button titled Submit a Question, and you can click on that button and submit your question, or you can email your questions to us at questions at capitallinkwebinars.com. You can submit a question at any time during the event, and uh, uh, Michael and uh, Jeremy will answer them uh, when the Q&A session starts. Please note that the opinions expressed by the presenters are not intended as legal or investment advice or advice of any kind as a matter of fact, and are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and Capital Link bears no responsibility for them. And furthermore, this discussion today may contain forward-looking statements regarding future events. Our next webinar, will be on, when, on Tuesday, October 24th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, featuring fixed ratings. And for more information, please come to visit um, webinars.capitallink.com. Again, thank you very much for being with us today. We have a great turnout, and uh, I will now turn the floor over to Michael and to Jeremy. Michael, please go ahead. Great. Thanks, Nicholas, and good morning, everyone, and, and, and thank you for joining our uh, MLP, or Energy Infrastructure, webinar. What I figured I'd do is I have a series of questions, uh, you know, meant to be thought pr provocative that I'm going to ask Jeremy, and then, um, you know, obviously we'd love to get your questions as well, so please feel free to submit them through the uh, correct uh, entry, and uh, we'll, we'll take those at the end. So, to, to begin, Jeremy, can you provide an overview on Tortoise and give us a little background on the on the firm uh, and, and and the firm's focus on essential assets? Sure, absolutely, Michael. Thanks, and uh, good speaking with everybody on the other end of the phone. Um, so, Tortoise has been around since 2002. Our our primary focus over time has traditionally been in the energy markets and more specifically in the midstream infrastructure area. And I think over time, what we've realized is that there are some similarities between energy assets and other what we call essential assets. And what we mean by essential assets is really those assets we 
or you know, typically the majority uh, of folks deem to be essential to everyday life and, and essential to the functioning of our economy. So when we think about that, we think not only about midstream energy assets, but we think about energy value chain as, as a whole, assets in the water space, even to the extent um, we look at healthcare, education, um, housing, and things of that nature. So I know today we're talking about energy infrastructure, but you know, Tortoise has really grown over the last 15 years to focus on all of these essential assets and really find value in providing investors access and providing sort of a bridge between sources of demand for capital and sources of supply. Great. Can you just quickly give us a, a, a brief history on uh, the, the energy pipeline funds business that Tortoise is in? I know, you know, I'm familiar. I cover a number of MLP closed-end funds, but uh, you also have ETFs, and I'm assuming you have other type of fund products. Could you just give us a quick update there? Yep, absolutely. So um, I, I think folks know us well for the closed-end funds. So if you think about TYG, uh, and I'm just kind of naming off tickers here, um, but TYAG and NTG are our primary midstream energy uh, closed-end funds. And then we also have... Um, TTP, which is a RIC structure that focuses on not just MLPs, but C-Corp pipelines as well. And then we have NDP, uh, which is a, um, an upstream-focused fund, so focused on EMP, oil and gas producers in North America. We also have a fund by the name of TPZ, which is a mix of equity and fixed income, which focuses uh, more specifically on, on power and, and some assets in the downstream um, sector of the value chain. Um, we have recently sort of bridged into the ETF space with T-Pipe, our, our sort of what I'll call our flagship ETF, which is a rich structure that focuses on both MLPs and, and C-Corp pipelines. And we, we think, you know, that, you know, the structure in that case is really important, which is why we've structured it as a RIC, limiting it to just 25% MLPs. We also have, have a water fund uh, as an ETF, a TBLU, uh, which focuses on um, water assets in North America uh, as well. And so we also manage a number of different private funds um, focused on various assets, some in the midstream, and then we also have um, some, we also manage SMA accounts. Gotcha. And, and, and in your view, and, and I, this is a question that I tend to get a lot, uh, in your mind, is what is the best structure to purchase a basket of MLPs or even just energy infrastructure assets or, or just infrastructure assets in general? You know, in your mind, do you favor one over the other? Or my guess would be just based on your offerings, they all sort of have the pros and cons. Yeah, I, I, I think, well, for one, I think if we're, if we're looking at it as, from a very generic standpoint, if you can afford sort of the, the tax um, the cost of doing the taxes, I think holding MLPs directly is obviously the best way you can possibly invest in MLPs in, in the midstream space. Um, we tend to find that closed-in funds are, are a great way to do it because they're structured as a C-Corp and they build the deferred tax liability at the C-Corp level. Um, and so, you know, you have a tax-deferred sort of return there. And then, you know, I think getting deeper into the structure, if you're investing in the midstream space in general, you know, holding, um, when you think about, um, you know, more um, open-end fun, open fund structures and ETFs, we find that the RIC structure is really the most efficient of those structures um, because of the, de the deferred tax liability that builds up on the assets when you hold 100% um, MLPs in those structures. And so we prefer to launch 
open-end funds and ETFs in a risk structure where you're limiting the number of MLPs to 25%, but at the same time, you're, you're really gaining exposure to a broader universe of pipelines with very similar fundamentals. And so from a total return standpoint, it's very attractive. And I would say that if you're investing in a pure MLP fund, you know, one of the things we, we look at is, you know, if you're, if you're reinvesting your dividends and you're not taking the yield off of those funds, reinvesting those dividends, you can get a lot better total returns um, in a rich structure from that standpoint. So, you know, when we, when we think about structure, that's kind of how we think about it. Sure. It's kind of with, with that background, it's very helpful. Can you just give us a feel for your thoughts on the, the MLP market today and sort of what's transpired over the last few years? It's obviously been a very volatile environment. Um, can you just maybe set the stage, you know, as far as why the products have traded the way they had the last few years and then where we go from here? Yeah, I, I think I'll start with the MLP sector in general. I think it's a, it's a great question, and obviously – um, since 2014, the energy markets have been, um, for lack of a better term, all over the place. Um, but I would say, you know, in general, what we've seen is um, strong EBITDA and distribution growth since the oil price downturn that began in mid-2014. And just as an example, you know, through, through the second quarter of 2017, MLP EBITDA has grown at a compound annual growth rate of 23% since that downturn. Um, what we have seen over, the, over that time period, though, is that MLPs and midstream assets in general, uh, the correlation to crude oil has increased substantially, and cor- those correlations increasing as oil prices continue to move lower, causing weakness in MLP equities, even though their EBITDA and distributions have been growing. So I think moving forward, um, we see MLP valuations right now being very, very attractive. Um, they're trading at discounts to their historical valuations on a number of metrics. And as oil prices uh, continue to firm up, we see more stable macro backdrop that will hopefully focus investor attention to the strong underlying fundamentals. We believe relative to other sectors like tech that MLPs and energy in general is very attractive right now. Um, I, I would say it's one of the only sectors that's undervalued the way it is. And, you know, if we continue to focus on the fundamentals and the healthy dis- distribution and dividend yields in those sectors, um, it's going to be a positive overall. Sure. Do you, do you think that, you know, correlated, you know, one of the most frustrating things about MLPs, I think, has been, you know, their correlation uh, over short time periods with the price of oil. Do you think, you know, as time goes on, the correlations will come back down and maybe, you know, register at like 0.3, Um whereas when, you know, oil has dramatically moved, we've seen the correlations with MLPs get as high as 0.7, 0.8. You know, what can we anticipate on that front? Yeah, no, I think, you know, the numbers that you're talking about are definitely what we're seeing. And I think over the long term, if you look over, the, you know, over a 10-year period, correlations have historically been around 0.4 or less. And in times of high volatility, uh, we see those spike up into the eights um, and, and, and get close to, you know, 0.9. And I think, you know, once you start to see the, the market firm up, and I think there's more certainty around what OPEC's going to do in the first quarter of 2018, and people start realizing, I mean, because we really do have a more positive backdrop for glo- globally speaking for oil prices with OPEC likely extending their cuts past 28, the first quarter of 2018. Um, you know, inventories continue to drop. Um, exports are, 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 are booming uh, from, a, from a crude oil and natural gas standpoint. And so I think when all these things come together 
and the market realizes that, that it is positive, um, that you'll start to see those correlations drop again. Great. And, and what do you, you know, one, one of the things that it, it appears that the market is very sensitive to the price of oil, but yet a lot of MLPs are more, say, net gas focused. Why do you think there's sort of that uh, dynamic? In other words, you know, why are, you know, why aren't investors more focused on net gas? It seems like oil, get, oil gets all the headlines. Yeah, I think oil gets all the headlines because, you know, net gas prices have been where they are uh, for an extended period of time, and I think there's some relative certainty around where those are going to be in the in the future. And so, you know, the focus has really been on the global dynamic with crude oil and what's going on there um, between OPEC and other countries um, outside of OPEC. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things, and this is slightly off topic, but one of the interesting things that we, we, we look at is the fact that you know, OPEC, the United States, OPEC, and Russia generally account for roughly 50% of crude oil output globally. And what people are not focusing on is that other 50%. And so, you know, you know, what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, the, the U.S. is really sort of in a great position from a crude oil standpoint to fill that gap. And I think from a natural gas standpoint, it's just a real positive story. I mean, we're a globally the lowest cost producer of natural gas. Um, we have the ability now to export LNG and natural gas. So it's a positive story. And I think folks just aren't focused on it for that reason. I think crude is, you know, it's, I mean, some of it's media driven, but, you know, I think for the most part, what you're going to see is that crude's going to firm up, but that volatility really, you know, that's what piques investors' interest. Yeah. Now, you, you talked about EBITDA over the last few years and all. I, I just wanted to give you, uh, you know, ask you, you know, what a question that I get a lot is, what do you anticipate, you know, what will, will MLP dividend growth register say this year, and what are your expectations maybe for even next year? Yeah, I think on average, you know, and this number doesn't, over time, doesn't move all that much. You know, I think over the next 12 months, we, we foresee, you know, roughly 5 to 7% distribution growth. Um, excluding distribution cuts. I think including distribution cuts, growth would equate to around zero, but that primarily reflects, you know, I mean, the, the distribution cut at one particular name in general, um, and I'm not going to say who they are, but I, I think most folks will probably know who that is. Um, and I think, you know, I think we would stay in that five, I mean, even going forward, I think next year we would stay in that five to eight percent distribu- distribution growth range. Right, right. As uh, you know, one of the things that that I always struggle with, and and you know, I've gotten varying answers over the years, is you know, as contracts between pipelines and drillers c- come due, and you know, over the next call it one, two, three years, um, will it be negotiated at lower rates, and there put you know, therefore put pr- pressure on pipeline prices? So. You know, I, I, I would, if I'm a driller uh, and I'm no longer making the money that I once was, when my contract with the pipeline comes due, why not renegotiate it at, at a lower rate? It, it, can you just sort of give us the dynamics around that? Sure. I think it's a great question. It's a question I get all the time as well. Um, so I, I guess what, first what I'd say is that contract nego- renegotiations are heavily dependent on the location of the pipelines in question and the supply-demand fundamentals in and around that area. Um, kind of contracts that are likely to be up for renewal in the next 12 to 18 months are likely to be in the areas that are less attractive in terms of drilling and, you know, therefore are likely to be subject to lower rates to reflect the lower amounts of demand for those pipelines and, and their takeaway capacity out of that region. 
as a guide, you know, really to where those rates are likely to end up on renegotiation, you know, I think a good rule of thumb is to look at basis differentials between the origination point and the end point of demand. Overall, we don't believe, you know, many of the portfolio companies will be materially affected by any of coming contract renegotiations because we tend to focus on those companies that are, you know, you know, demand pull pipelines out of very uh, strong acreage and, and locales. Um, but in general, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be a huge issue for a lot of our, at least our portfolio companies. Okay, no, that's, that's certainly fair. Um, you know, one of the things that's been in the press a lot, especially called the last year or so, is, uh, you know, folks questioning the MLP model in general, that MLPs constantly need to go to market to raise new capital. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on the ability of MLPs to raise capital? I guess a lot of it is, like, simply very market dependent. Um, you know, do, do you envision that MLPs will be able to come to the market and raise capital easily, or capital markets are shut to them, and is, you know, is there a chance that the model is broken? So I'll, I'll start by saying I don't think the model's broken. Um, what, I, what I do think is that the dynamics around capital raising for MLPs has changed dramatically over the last couple of years. And one, it's presented a great opportunity for investors. Um, but also, you know, I, I guess, you know, traditionally, you know, capital was raised, you know, 50-50 debt equity split uh, with overnight equity offerings, stuff on the equity portion, things of that nature. And what we're seeing is alternative avenues to that capital. So think of pipes, so public investment in private equities, or I'm sorry, private investment in public equities and preferred offerings. We think this is a positive because, you know, it, one, it, it, it sort of, you know, solidifies the MLP position, but it also provides investors a, another avenue of investing in these MLPs through these different sorts of offerings. We actually have a private fund that focuses specifically on pipe and convertible preferred offerings, and um, we've found very attractive returns in those areas. Sure. Now, given, you know, we talked a lot about your outlook and how you guys, you know, how Tortoise in general is constructed. Can you just discuss sort of, uh, you know, how your products are positioned, you know, top sectors, breakdown between LPs and GPs, NAC gas versus oil pipelines, any type of color on that would be useful. Yeah, so I, I think obviously we, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but natural gas really remains very attractive area for uh, investment and, and pipelines focused on that area. I think just looking at, I'll just use our ETF as an example because I think it, 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 it describes sort of the sector well. Um, you know, roughly, if you think about it by from a structure standpoint, MLPs represent, you know, roughly 18% of that portfolio um, with C-Corps and other pipelines representing about 44% and GPs and LP affiliates representing about 38% of that portfolio. Roughly 42% of that portfolio is natural gas pipelines. Um, and so if you think about even the way the sector is weighted in general, natural gas is a heavier focus um, just from a market cap weighting standpoint. Um, but we also think refined product pipelines are doing well. Um, I think if you think about you know, local gas distribution companies, um, things of that nature, I mean, those are all sectors that we focus on and crude oil you know, thinking about it from a from a, a sector standpoint, it, it represents roughly 22% of the overall market that we look at. And so, you know, I, just to give you, you know, some of the larger names in, in, in that fund, you know, Williams, Kinder Morgan, TransCanada are, are folks that, you know, represent a significant portion of that portfolio. But 
um, you know, that's kind of the way we're looking at the world right now. Great. And the next question is, is uh, you know, one, especially uh, from a retail standpoint that, you know, at least a lot of, uh, you know, my clients struggle with are some of the, the, the tax nuances of MLPs. And you briefly touched on, you know, C-Corp versus RIC structure. But just to clarify, um, you know, can you just, you know, at, a, at somewhat of a high level, uh, and we also happen to get a question in from the field on this, um, you know, what are the differences uh, within the fund of, of those structured as a RIC versus those structured as C-Corps? Right. I mean, the big difference is that RICs are, are restricted to 25% MLPs. Um, the C-Corp structure in a closed-in fund is unique in that the, um, the distributions from MLPs in that fund are tax-deferred until the sale of those assets. And so if you think about it from a long-term investment standpoint, you're really – it's not tax-free. Uh, obviously, I'm not an accountant, so um, take with that take that what you will. But, you know, I think you, you have a tax-deferred um, investment opportunity where if you're a long-term holder of those assets, you know, the likelihood of, of, of paying taxes on that in the future, you know, you know it, 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 it's very attractive from a tax standpoint, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Sure. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, in some of the funds that we cover, part of our thesis is that if we do get corporate tax rate cuts out of the new administration, um, you know, those funds that are structured as C-Corps and those that, that have big deferred tax liabilities, um, they may get a nice pop in their NAVs if, if corporate tax rates do actually get cut. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if you look at some of the, so, you know, when I was mentioning that it was tax deferred, so what that does is it builds up a deferred tax liability, and particularly with the C-Corp closed-in funds, you know, there's some, particularly ones like TYG that have been around for a significant period of time, have built up rather large deferred tax liabilities, and having a change in the tax code that allows that, that tax rate to decrease um, would absolutely, because the, the deferred tax liability is built into the NAV of the funds. And so when you think about it from um, a NAV standpoint, you would absolutely get a pop there. I, I think one of the interesting things I would bring up from a tortoise perspective is on TYG, we've, um, we've started investing in some renewable assets um, that allow us to use the tax capacity in that fund. One, it allows us to invest in assets as the energy value chain evolves. So it makes TYG more in line with what the energy value chain looks like today, but it also allows us to take the tax capacity of that fund and deploy it into assets um, and, 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 and basically get tax credits that relieve some of that deferred tax liability. Gotcha. That's interesting. I, you know, I, I had seen that recently in, in, in TYG in particular, and I thought that was a, a pretty unique way to look at things. Um, and then, you know, the last question that I have before we, we also move on to, uh, you know, a couple of questions uh, that, that have been submitted, um, you know, as we come to the end of the year here and, you know, MLPs are one of the, the you know, are an asset class that has struggled this year, do you anticipate um, uh, a big year for tax law selling, um, you know, and, and, and how do you think that all sort of shakes out for performance maybe end of this year, early next year? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think now is a great opportunity, you know, particularly given where valuations are at in the energy space, particularly in midstream, to do some tax loss harvesting. I think, you know, to my point earlier, if you're in a, you know, I, I think one of the points I would make is like if you're if you're in a 
if you're in a, a structure that's 100% MLPs and you're not taking those dividends or those that yield off of that fund and you're reinvesting those assets, it may be a good time to rethink your total return strategy and redeploy those assets maybe into a RIC structure where you're getting more exposure to various pipelines um, with, with a very attractive total return component to it. Right. That's that's fair. I'm going to, you know, move on now to, uh, you know, some of the questions that we've gotten in from, from the audience. And, you know, the, the first is, you know, uh, at, a, at a high level, can you just talk about, and, and this is specifically focused on the, the MLP closed-end funds, um, how the leverage works and sort of what are the pluses and minuses of leverage in the MLP closed-end structure? Yeah, we, we try to maintain a relatively modest amount of leverage on the closed-end fund. So think of it around 25%, and that's a very round number, so that's not an exact number. But, um, you know, w- what that does is allows us to offset some of the um, expenses of the fund, um, and it allows us to benefit, um, you know, from on, on an upswing in the market. But I, w- I would say that maintaining a modest amount of leverage is important because when you think about leverage in a downswing, it can be very detrimental to the assets um, of the fund, and you could be in a situation where, you know, there, there could be some sort of forced sell-off or something like that. So we've been very, very, um, you know, I would say conservative in our use of leverage, and, and, and if, you know, I think one of the things I would, um, I would tout is that, you know, in a market that we've seen a significant downswing, um, we, were, we were able to maintain distributions. Um, and and to not have a, a lot of issues with that leverage, but it is it, it, it is beneficial for the funds to have leverage, but it it has to be done the right way, absolutely. And and you know I know one of the things that 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 Tortoise does is you you do lock in a portion of, of borrowing costs. Is there you know an amount that you try to target of locking in so uh, you know you're not subject to the movements of, of short term rates? Um, uh, is there like on average is there an amount that you you typically target? Um, I would say I'm just thinking back to sort of, I, you know, it, it really varies depending on what the market looks like. I think the the longer we get in the credit cycle and I think is, you know, the potential for interest rates goes up, becomes more and more likely, you know, you'll see us fix out more of that debt. Um, you know, it, typically we've done some floating rate and fix it out with, with options, um, with swaps. Um, but, you know, uh, it's, in terms of like, can I give a run? You know, I, I think, you know, maybe like a quarter floating and three quarters fixed, something around that range. Okay. No, that's fair. That's generally what I've seen in, in, in you know, a number of your products. So I think that's a, that's a good gauge. Um, you know, the next question came from the field, and I'm not sure, Jeremy, if you, if you have an answer to it, but I'll, I'll ask it anyways. Um, what is the best way to invest in the, the growing U.S. Uh, LNG export industry? You know, I think there's a lot of, there's a number of great companies out there that are, you know, I, one actually comes to mind, um, Chenier is obviously a, a big player in that industry. Uh, and, you know, obviously in a number of our funds, we, we focus on, fo- on, on the area of LNG exports. And so I think finding a fund um, that, you know, that basically, you know, has those as some key holdings would be an important way to access that. I, I you know, I, I think it's great to have a diversified portfolio that focuses on on that part of the value chain specifically. Um, but there there are definitely some key holdings that you would want to identify in those funds. That's great. Well, um, 
you know, uh, I think lastly, and I'll let you sort of sum it up because we're bumping up against a half an hour, and I want, you know, we wanted to keep this tight. Uh, are there any sort of last, uh, you know, last things that you'd like to input? I mean, I maybe sum up your thoughts as far as where you see the market going the next call it six to twelve months, and then from there we'll wrap it up. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a great opportunity when you think about. I think valuations are, like I mentioned, um, very, very attractive right now. And if you think about it from a fundamental standpoint, um, these assets really just make sense. And I think once you see some of the um, the market craziness settle down and folks return to fundamentals, that this market's really going to, that this sector's really going to benefit from that. And so I would just say, you know, we we continue to be strong believers in these essential assets and think that we offer a number of very attractive structures to access those assets. And, you know, from for the investors out there, you know, we're always happy to jump on the phone and talk about that. But, um, you know, I would just say thank you for having us and, and um, glad to be here. Great. Thanks, Jeremy. And thanks, everyone, for dialing in. Um, great webinar, great content, Jeremy. And uh, we look forward to hearing from all of you in the future. Have a great day. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you.